Well, good morning. We are going to, um, I know the screen says Acts 1-8, and we will look at Acts 1-8, but we're going to look at a few passages this morning. Um, so if you want to find your way to Acts chapter 1, you can, and we'll get there. Um, but we're going to look at a couple other passages as well uh, once we get going. But I want to begin by, by just really doing a, just kind of a quick review of where we've been so far. Uh, we've spent the last six weeks looking uh, at what I, I said last week was kind of a, it was a ground-level view of fulfilling the great commission of Jesus. And so what we've seen over that time is per Paul's second letter to Timothy, that's where we've been week after week in one verse, 2 Timothy 2, 2, what we've seen is that the church is on its way to faithfully fulfilling the task of making disciples when it's made up of born-again believers who live a life where the gospel is preeminent, they're defined by faithfulness to what God has declared, with men who lead as God designed and who teach others the right things that they have been taught. And so we've said if we, if anybody has these things moving towards fulfilling the task of making disciples as Christ has called the church to do, then we're, we're well on our way to achieving that. And all of this is for a purpose. And that purpose, all of these things that I just uh, reviewed, five characteristics from 2 Timothy 2, 2, is for a purpose. And ultimately, as we've seen, that purpose is what? That disciples of Jesus Christ would be made. Because as we've made note of a number of times in the last six weeks or so, making disciples is what the church was commanded to do by Jesus himself. We've looked at a number of times, and I'll read it again this morning, Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, so he's speaking to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, the reality is, and we've, we've touched on this, so this isn't you know, groundbreaking or new this morning, but the reality is, is under God's authority, church is to teach others what Christ taught, and in doing so, invite them to also follow Christ. And so what does it look like for the church today to carry out the mantle of, di- of disciple-making as commanded by Christ? And so I want to just give you, um, I don't know, I'm going to call them three results. And any time, I, I always say this, did you guys' screen just go out too? Okay. Um, any time we say, okay, look, here's three results, that's not saying that this is an exhaustive list and these are the only three things that will happen, okay? But we are saying that these are three things that happen when disciples of Jesus Christ are made by the body of Christ. And so I want to give you three things. You can follow along with me if you've not made your way to Acts chapter 1 yet. You can go ahead and do that now. But I want to read a few verses. I'm just going to begin in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles of whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You see, one of the results of the church striving to make disciples... I was getting rough prepared to advance this, but you literally, I'm assuming you just see the exact same thing I do, right? Okay. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to take notes like you're in college or in school. They're not going to put them on the screen. You're just going to have to take them. Number one, the first result is the gospel spreads. That's Acts 1, 1 through 11. When the church commits to making disciples, the gospel spreads. The book of Acts is the second book that is written for us in what we call our Bible, our New Testament canon. The first book, of course, that was written by Luke was the Gospel of Luke. And Luke records for us here, he, as, he's, as he's transitioning from Christ has left, and so now I'm going to begin recording what the Holy Spirit did through the Acts of the Apostles. Good morning. Good morning. And so he records for us, shedding light on the expectation that Jesus had for uh, the results of making disciples. So I see the screen is working now. Thank you, guys. So they've been commanded to make disciples, and part of what Luke records for us is that Jesus tells his disciples to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promised Holy Spirit. You might remember in the last week or two, Pastor Aaron has been talking quite a bit in our, our discipleship about the Holy Spirit and its role in the life of a believer. And he's talked about things like, for example, where Jesus said, you know, it's actually for your benefit that I go away. And there's one who the Father is going to send who's going to come after me. And it will actually be better for you to have him than it is me. And that reference of him, of course, was the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, prior to his ascension, he, t- he tells the disciples to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promised Holy Spirit to come upon them. And when it comes, they will have everything that they need to obey the command of making disciples. When the Holy Spirit comes, the disciples are now equipped. They have learned from Jesus They have walked with Jesus, and then they would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, enabling enabling them as they move forward to fulfill the hand that Jesus had given them. So he tells them that once the Spirit comes, that they are to be his witnesses. And they are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, and then into Judea, Samaria, and then ultimately to the very ends of the earth. As I was considering this reality this morning of the gospel spreading, or not this morning, this week. As I was considering this reality this morning and the charge that Jesus gives for the disciples to be his witnesses, I was very challenged by the word witness. 
We see the word witness in English, and if you're of the younger generation, when you hear the word witness, uh, that, that word has been actually attached to, um, I'm not endorsing this individual, I'm just saying if you're of the younger generation, you might know, you're going to be able to resonate with what, I, what I'm getting ready to say is, the word witness has been attached to LeBron James and his greatness. You guys have probably seen that picture where he's got his back and he's banged his hands together and thrown the dust up in the air and... It was all over billboards and buildings in Cleveland. When he went back to Cleveland, it was this idea of it said, witness. And we think of witness, we probably think of maybe something we see. You think of a, of a witness in a court trial. They bring somebody who saw firsthand the things that had transpired, and they bring them into that courtroom to give testimony or account to the things that they have heard. And that's a great representation of a witness. But what was really interesting to me this week was that the word witness, as it would have appeared in the New Testament in its Greek form, is the word martis, which is where we get our English word martyr. Now that might not mean anything to you. Perhaps it will when I tell you what the English word martyr means. There's a number of definitions, but in our context this morning, the definition of the word martyr is a reference to someone who suffers even to the point of death rather than renounce their belief system. Now, I want to just stop very almost abruptly and, and, and ask you to consider with me the nuance of a proper understanding of the word as used here of witness. Because you see, Jesus is not just saying to his disciples, I want you to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world, and I want you to tell people about me. I want you to go and be my witness. Yes, they are to witness. But you know what's interesting? When we consider the idea of witness in light of the, the, the word where we get, the, the, the Greek word where we get the English word martyr, suffering for what you believe, it tends to give a whole new understanding of what we know about how the disciples' lives ended. The disciples did not live happy, jolly lives and be, then be ushered into the presence of Jesus for eternity. Eleven of the twelve disciples were killed for their faith in Jesus. The idea of martyr, to, to believe in, 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 a, in a belief system so strongly that you'll stand for it, ultimately dying for it. And you might say, well, you said eleven of the twelve disciples died. What about the twelfth? Well, the twelfth was the apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved. And Pastor Aaron, he read this morning the call to worship from Revelation chapter 21. And, and many of you might know that the, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. What you might not know is that prior to being on the island of Patmos, they did try to kill the Apostle John. They boiled him alive. And when he survived being boiled alive, they cast him to the island of Patmos, where at that point we just believe he died on the island. So just because he didn't die for his faith in Jesus, no less, it is in no way diminishes the reality of this word martyr, meaning somebody who's willing to suffer even to the point of death for what they believe. 
You see, Jesus is communicating something so much greater to his disciples than just go tell people about me. We could legitimately say that as Jesus is communicating with his disciples and he's called them through his gospels to follow them and he's taught them and he, and he taught them things like, you know, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to leave you. And then he explains what he means. I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, but my, I'm going to be taken up. And then they see this happen. They see Jesus be crucified. Now, let's just be practical for a minute. If you know me very well, you know I like practical. When Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit, because then you will be my martyrs to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, they weren't thinking, yay, we're going to go back to Jerusalem and tell people about Jesus. They were understanding that Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to potentially die for me. To live your life with such strong conviction for what you believe about the things that I've commanded you and that you've seen me do, that you're going to go out into the world and you're going to proclaim Jesus and you're probably going to suffer for it. And you might even die. And this wouldn't have been absurd because they watched Jesus die. Because Jesus told them things like, a slave is not greater than his master. They hated me, so know that they're going to hate you too. Jesus said things like, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There was no confusion amongst the disciples of what it meant when Jesus said that they were to go and to be his witnesses. The gospel spreads. When people die for something, it's noteworthy. And this was the case with the disciples. By, by now, let me just give you an example. By now, you guys have all seen a number of videos that have come out of the situation in Ukraine of the people who have stood for what they believed in and they died for it. Not 2,000 years ago, last week. And we know it. Right? We see the things, we see these accounts. We understand, like, when people die for something, it's noteworthy. The disciples ultimately died for Christ. But you see, their witness for him, it started in the immediate area of their lives. Early on in the book of Acts, time and time again, what do we see? We see the apostles being persecuted. We see them being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. We see them locked up and put in jail. We see them beaten. We see them threatened. But through all of that, the disciples continued in the act of witnessing to the greatness of Jesus Christ. Again, we have the completed canon of Scripture, so we know that it did, in fact, start in Jerusalem and then spread to the regions in the, uh, the, the surrounding regions of Jerusalem and Judea. And you think about the reality. Here we are, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world with a book that has been more scrutinized than anything in human history uh, but I have no shame telling you, but it's been vindicated and verified and is yet to be proven untrue. And we stand up on Sunday mornings and we talk about the people who were witnesses for Jesus, who suffered 
and died for the cause of Christ. When the lives of God's people represent the God of the Bible, people know and the word spreads. And we must understand as we we think of this reality of the, the, the gospel spreading, it always starts in our immediate context. It always starts in our immediate context. And every one of us has an immediate context, right? We think of our family, maybe our friend groups, our coworkers, classmates, our community, and then abroad. And I think one thing that is important for us to, 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 I want to be careful to clarify something here. Because when we talk about the gospel spreading and being this, this witness for Jesus, this is more the evangelism side of things. So out of discipleship, evangelism happens. But evangelism and discipleship are not the same thing. Evangelism is living a life that is a testimony of such that you would have opportunity to impart or to share Jesus and invite others to follow him. When people uh, uh, profess faith in Jesus and claim to be following him, now we're doing discipleship. Okay, so they're different things, but we see that as we make disciples, evangelism takes place. The gospel spreads. And again... This starts in our immediate context and then goes out. And so what happens when people live out the gospel in their lives? What happens as that gospel spreads and comes in contact with other folks? What happens if those who claim to know Christ live the life of witness? Well, the first thing, again, these aren't in a particular order, but one of the primary results is the reality that people are saved. People trust Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for the redemption into a right relationship with God into the family of Christ. So turn your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to look at a few verses there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. That's new life. That's new birth or or rebirth. That's Jesus telling Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. That's the, the aspect of 2 Timothy 2.2 2 we looked at where we talked about. We have to have born-again believers. We have to have, as the church of Jesus Christ seeks to move ahead in making disciples, we must have people who are a new creation. And the understanding that comes with being a new creation is a responsibility that we've been given. New creation is salvation. This very simply, it's the point where a person is convicted of sin and understands that the only answer to that sin debt is the resurrected Jesus Christ. It's the only answer. 
Christ has overcome death and in doing so is exactly who he said he was and is now qualified to redeem sinful people to a right relationship with God. This is literally a matter of life and death. People trusting Christ for salvation is of utmost importance because every single person will give account. There's not a person who lives who will not give account before Jesus Christ. And so, as Pastor Aaron again was talking about this morning in discipleship class, when those who are a new creation in Christ understand the significance and magnitude of the gospel message that they have been given, that they have heard, that they profess to believe in, the only right response is to be an ambassador of that message. We're an ambassador of that message because Christ has overcome death, has redeemed us as the uniquely qualified one, and in redeeming us has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Uh, reconciliation is the bringing of two parties who are separated for whatever reason back together. That's reconciliation. And in the biblical context, reconciliation is a holy God and a sinful man. And through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, in faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the sinful man is reconciled to a holy God. And because this is a matter of life and death, notice what Paul says here. Paul says, as an ambassador of Jesus, Christ has reconciled us. Verse 20, God making his appeal through us, we implore you, be reconciled to God. That is the purpose of the spreading of the gospel. That people would hear that they would believe, and that they would be reconciled to God. You know, I think about this reality of our, our first passage we looked at in, in, in being a witness, in us personally being a witness of who Jesus is and of the things that Jesus has done. And, and I want you to understand something. For us in our context, it's more important what Jesus has done in our lives than it is in someone else's, Okay? And that's not to say, like, what Jesus has done in, in, in other people's lives, and we look to, like, because we've all heard stories, right? We've all heard accounts where people give testimony to what Jesus has done in their lives. And, and many of us have probably heard um, a story that, you know, maybe for whatever reason has kind of gained prominence or is more large scale, and maybe we've been challenged and impacted by that. And that's not bad or wrong. That's okay. But it is far more fruitful for the impact that Jesus has on me as an individual to be regularly imparted into the people in my circle than it is for people to just always hear of these great, big, grand stories. And I want to diminish the great, big, grand stories because God uses them for his glory. But Jesus didn't say, I want you to go and be my witnesses, but when you go and you be my witnesses, I want you to tell them about this person or that person. Jesus said, no, you go and be my witnesses, again, suffering, maybe even to the point of death, and tell people about what I've done in your life. Tell people how I've worked in your life. Tell people about the understanding that you now have of the things that I taught following my resurrection and, and ascension. 
See, the goal is always that people would be reconciled to God and that they in turn live out reconciliation so that others could and would be reconciled to God. When we, let's say we listen to a podcast and maybe it's a great testimony of something that God has done. You know what oftentimes those testimonies from someone else lack? What Paul says here. We're being reconciled to Christ through God. And so on behalf of God, we implore you to be reconciled. You know, lots of times we hear these testimonies of great things that God has done, but you know what doesn't accompany them? The, 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 the being implored to be reconciled to Jesus. That your reconciliation to Jesus is more important than what Jesus did in my life. But hopefully, God will use what's transpired in the lives of the people that you rub shoulders with. I pray that if I went back to my hometown and I met with 10 guys I went to high school with, I pray 20 years later they would tell you I am different than I was in high school. And by God's grace, if that would be what they would say, I now have a platform to speak into their lives about what God has done in mine. And the fact that they know me personally is going to be more significant in their thought processes of understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus has done than someone of someone afar off. Again, I'm not diminishing. God uses those, those people afar off in those big stories. But we all have been given the ministry of reconciliation, of taking the gospel, seeing it spread, and imploring people to be saved as a result of that. And this is why the onlooking world needs to see our witness. And when they see our witness, what they need to see is that we understand and we live out the fact that for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. That's what's at stake here. The purpose of being reconciled to God and God receiving glory through our lives is that as ambassadors, we would say, it's not just about not going to hell. It breaks my heart that we have reduced salvation to that in far too many instances. Well, you just don't go to hell. Jesus died, so I don't go to hell. No, the Bible says Jesus died for your sin so that you could manifest the righteousness of Jesus to the world you live in. That's drastically different than Jesus died so that I don't have to go to hell. And our witness for Jesus has to be right or people aren't going to get saved. And that's not me putting God in a box. That's not me saying God can't work through, you know, shortcomings and failures. Absolutely he does. I'm so thankful God works in spite of me. And that's true for all of us, okay? And so he works, but he calls us to be witnesses and to see his gospel spread so that people could be saved, that they could be reconciled and then be ambassadors of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, ultimately... When the gospel is spread and people are saved, God is glorified. And I would submit to you this morning that that is the crux of the matter. That everything that transpires 
and being a witness for Jesus and seeing people saved and living our lives in such a way that we get to be those ambassadors ultimately is for one purpose. It's for the glory of God. I want you to turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll see together this reality that God is glorified when disciples are made. Beginning in verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this, it, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many they may be saved. And I just have to read verse 1 of chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, is what the Apostle Paul says. You know, I want to tell you that I, I just absolutely believe that Scripture teaches us, and it's reinforced for us here, that the overarching purpose of the lives of mankind is to bring God glory. So whether you eat or you drink, and I want to try to make sense of this in just a minute. He says, whether you eat or you drink, so whether you do or you do not, do it for God's glory. And the conversation that Paul's having here with the church at Corinth is a conversation about meat that is purchased in the marketplace. And, and basically what Paul is saying is this, you are going to interact with people who say, I'm, it does not violate my conscience to eat the meat that was offered. And you're going to meet with, and you're going to eat with people who say, it is a violation of my conscience to eat the meat that has been offered. And so Paul says, in short, okay, as, as, he, as, he, as he begins there, where he says in verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Paul says, look, you've got to understand, Corinth, if you make a to-do about eating this meat for those who their conscience is not defiled of eating the meat, you're going to work and be a hindrance, right? If it doesn't violate your conscience, then eat the meat. And if you go with somebody who says, I don't think we should eat this meat, it's been offered, then though you may think it's okay to eat the meat, he says, don't eat the meat for the sake of the one that you're with. Ultimately, why? Because the purpose is God's glory. It's not really about the meat. It's not really about what they eat and, and what they drink. What it's about is the glory of God. And Paul says, look, you can eat the meat if you want to. It's lawful. You see, there was a time when it was not lawful. But now that time, it's, it's, not, it's lawful for them to eat meat. And so Paul says, you can if you want. But Paul says something super helpful. Just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's helpful. You can be entitled to do it, but even if you're entitled to do it, when you do it, is it helpful or is it a hindrance? You see, the reality is, and I see this especially with my generation, 
We can damage our witness for Christ if we act only upon the things or if we, if we act upon what is lawful with disregard to whether or not it's helpful. Some of you might remember a number of years ago, I went to a conference in Louisville, Kentucky, and, and uh, actually, ironically enough, Josh was with me. And um, we went to this conference over there, and it was, um, it's, you know, it's, it's been a blessing over the years. And, and uh, I found myself, like, looking around and, and, and being, um, I don't know, almost saddened. And I was, I was saddened because, because I see this, this rising disposition in my generation and the one behind us that says, don't tell me, because it's lawful. Don't, don't expect me to exercise or to not exercise my liberty because it's lawful. And I know Josh and I had many conversations about that. And I remember sharing forms of that before. But, but you know, sometimes I, I, I stand around and I look at this conference that we were at that's actually designed for pastors and, and Christian leaders. There was almost 12,000 people at the Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky when we were there. And as I sat and I watched... You know, and we maybe we'd go out to eat after the conference. And, you know, it was common. And so all these places are flooded with all these people. And I just watch a lot of things that transpire. And it's not that what they were doing we would point to biblically and say that's wrong. Because Paul says here it's lawful. But is it helpful? Is it helpful to go into these places and engage in these activities that the Bible doesn't say are, are not fitting for a Christian? You know, uh, it, it doesn't say that you can't do this but it challenges us to consider whether or not it's helpful if we do. What about those who are around us when we make the decisions that we make, right? And so I guess I'll just tell you, so I don't, I don't want to be too vague. Uh, it was, the, it was the, the context of alcohol. Like, I don't believe the Bible says that you can't consume alcohol. The Bible does not say that. The Bible forbids drunkenness, okay? And so as we're out and we're eating dinner and you're seeing all of these, these people that everybody knows just left these pastor's conferences and they're, sa- and they're pounding them. Now again, I, that's, that's on them, not me. It's lawful, but is it helpful? Is it helpful in the context of a pastor's conference attended by 12,000 people to go sit in places where there's workers and other people from the city. I mean, most of them were people from the conference aside from workers and, and, and just live in such a way that maybe it's not fitting for Christ. Now, again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. The point is very simple. It may be lawful, but that doesn't mean it's helpful. And the overarching ideology is we, is, is, is these individuals leaving the pastor's conference, I would submit, is they're making the decision, well, it's lawful for me to consume alcohol, but in this context, in this setting, is it helpful? Does it promote the glory of God? It might be lawful, but that doesn't mean it's helpful. And so Paul says, whether you eat or you drink, Whatever you decide to do or not do, just be sure that what you do is to the glory of God. This is the summarization of what he would say here in this passage in 1 Corinthians. You see, the task of making disciples, I would submit to you, ultimately is not about the people who are saved. It's not about the ones that God uses to make disciples. Making disciples is about the glory of God. 
when the onlooking world sees the body of Jesus Christ say, look at the greatness of God and what he's done in the lives of this one who's been redeemed and this one who's been redeemed and this one who's been redeemed. And now they're seeking and striving to try to reproduce what has, what, what has transpired in their life, to see more people saved as an ambassador for Jesus. You see, when the goal is God's glory, the ministry that has been entrusted to believers, that is the ministry of reconciliation. It's front and center. And the ministry of reconciliation will be the message of those who witness when the, glo- when the goal is the glory of God. You know, I want to share something that I, I believe is in here. We've had all kinds of issues, so hopefully it is. Can you see, is there a chart there when I advance this? Okay, some of you saw this saw scene. I don't know, you'd think it's a, somebody who talks for a living. I would uh, be better at English. But some of you have seen this recently. Is that the right rendering, scene, saw? What's the word I'm looking for? Some of you have seen... Thanks, guys. See, it's a teamwork. Some of you have seen this chart. And so if you have, bear with me. And I pray that it will be a further challenge to you. Some of you have not seen this chart. And so if you haven't, I'm going to explain it to you and pray that it will be a challenge to you. Can you guys see that? Ooh, that's small. Oh, it looks pretty good on that TV. It's way smaller on mine. All right, so here's the premise of this chart. If on the left-hand column... If one person a week professes faith in Jesus Christ, and that's it, that's all we're talking about. They profess faith in Jesus Christ. After one year, you have 53 professing believers. You have one, okay? So it's, in this case, let's use me, okay? So you have one, the pastor, and then the, the 52, the one each week for the year. And then you see, you go down to week two, and you have 105 and 157, and then you can see it's growing. There's growth, and that's a great thing, Right? There's growth that's coming with just the one profession a week. But I want to turn your attention to the right side. Because the premise of the right side of this chart, and again, some of you have seen this, but bear with me. The right side of this chart says, if one person, so in this case, let's use me, makes one disciple a year. That's all they do. They make one disciple a year. After one year, they have two disciples. So that's not as significant, potentially, you might say, as year one of one profession. I would submit that it probably is more significant because you have two disciples instead of 53 professing believers. But let's keep going. After two years, you have four. We're not making a lot of progress. After year four, we have 16. Obviously, basic math says the number just doubles every year, right? Because each person is meeting with one person. And our numbers double. And so if you do this for eight years, and year eight... One person a week professing faith in Jesus Christ will leave you with 417 professions of faith in Jesus Christ. And one disciple a year, starting in year one down to year eight, will leave you with 256 disciples. So our our gap is still almost growing wider. But something incredible happens in year nine of making one disciple a year per person. We have 469 professions of faith in Jesus but if we make one disciple of year, in year nine, we have 512 disciples. So we are now outproducing the professions of faith with disciples in nine years. Now I want to take a big leap. I want to go from nine years to 32 years. So in one generation and a half. If for one and a half generations, every week, 
One person professes faith in Jesus Christ. Again, this is just a profession. This is not a growth. This is not a maturation. This is not a reproduction. This is just one profession of faith. After 32 years, you have 1,665 professions. Well, again, in and of itself, that's great, right? If we look back after three decades of ministry here and there were 1,600 people who professed faith in Christ and were engaged in serving at Dale Bible Church, we'd say, praise God, right? But if you make one disciple a year, who then makes one disciple a year, in 32 years, you will have 4,294,976,296 disciples of Jesus Christ. That's two-thirds of the earth we live on in three decades. You see, the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God is make disciples. We had a conversation in our leadership. We've been meeting at 8 a.m. as a leadership downstairs before discipleship class. And we had a conversation last week. And as we talked as a board, you know, one of the things that we recognized that the church, not just our church, but the church as a whole, is, is really kind of plagued by today is the reality that we see the profession of faith as the end goal. If we just get them to profess faith in Jesus, our job is done. The word of God says, make disciples. Our goal is to reproduce and multiply. 32 years, that's less time than I've been alive. One disciple a year, repeated by each of those disciples each year. And 32 years would would make disciples of more than two-thirds of the earth's population. The church has a clear task, make disciples. And when she commits to this, the gospel spreads, people are saved, and God is glorified. May the church of Jesus Christ today take up this task with intentionality for the glory of God.